Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Dave. And this is The Commentary Cast, a podcast bringing you missing commentaries and first-hand insights from the filmmakers behind the streaming content you love. In this week's episode, we talk to director Michael Matthews about his film, Love and Monsters. Do you like your post-apocalyptic action, Dave? I love me some post-apocalypse. And if I know you at all, you love love. I am a romantic. Then something tells me you're going to love this week's movie, Dave. It's a monster movie called Love and Monsters. I suspect you are very, very much right. Uh, Now, the title does give away a lot, but why don't you tell the folks at home what this week's movie is all about? Well, seven years after he survived the monster apocalypse, lovably hapless Joel leaves his cozy underground bunker behind on a quest to reunite with his ex. Let's take a listen to the trailer. How far away is Amy's colony? 85 miles. It's an impossible journey. Everything will try to kill you. Don't fight. Just run and hide. Ah, okay. You really got me going. You got me so I don't know what I'm doing. You all alone? Me too. You don't have to talk about it. You want to come with me? Listen to your instincts out here, man. What if I have terrible instincts? You'll die. Super encouraging speech. Take our world back. You're more of a survivor than I thought. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, I feel like Tom Cruise. Monsters. You know, the the truth in advertising there, there's a lot of love and a lot of monsters. Uh, The film stars Dylan O'Brien, Jessica Henwick, Michael Rooker, and Ariana Greenblatt. Fun fact, the original script was written by a friend of the show, Brian Duffield, who appeared a few episodes ago to provide commentary for his film, Spontaneous. And this is actually Michael's second feature, Dave. His first was the gritty Western Five Fingers for Marseille. Uh, the missing DNA between that and Love and Monsters was his short film, Apocalypse Now Now, which you can find on the internet, uh, which showed his skills in the sci-fi genre. Well, I say let's get into it for those who are new to our podcast. Grant and Michael are going to be having a conversation while watching the film. And if you listen for the cue to hit play, you can watch along too or just listen along at your own leisure. All right, my shotgun's loaded. I'm ready. <laughs> Open the bunker door. Let's do it. Shotgun's loaded and your heart is full of love. Let's go. Michael Matthews, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about your movie, Love and Monsters. It's an absolute pleasure to to have you here. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, awesome to be on here. I love the channel you're making. It's really cool. Well, it's great to finally get the chance to meet you too, actually, because like, I feel like you and I have been ships in the night for a long time. Uh, and I guess the ocean that we've been traveling on is the hometown my hometown of Perth and sounds like maybe your partial hometown of Perth. Yeah. It's like a family town for me. My, my cousins, I've got uncles and aunts and cousins. And then my mom moved there 15, 20 years ago. And my sister's been there for 10 years or so. So that's been, it's like a big part of my life there. And then I, the, we cross paths doing some commercial things and, and that sort of stuff. So definitely like I know it quite well. Yeah. And then, of course, you like uh, have gone on to make your latest film in Australia as well. Is that happenstance? Is that because you were just always looking for things that you can bring to Australia? You know, cruise, you know, the landscape. 
No, that was like a, just budgetary, to be honest. It was a rebate-based, like, locations, best place for it. We, it was, we're juggling it between Cape Town, South Africa, and New Zealand, and, and, uh, and Oz. And then it ended up just being kind of just with what we were going to get and uh, the best kind of rebate situation. And it just, like, turned out to be the best place to do it, you know? I mean, it, it certainly uh, is it pays dividends on, on screen. Like what you're able to, to kind of milk from these locations and the atmosphere that you create in the film is uh, very impressive for what I'm sure is never enough money, never enough time to execute this movie. Yeah. It was like, you know, going into it, you think from doing much smaller films, it feels like a lot of money, but the money just disappears so quickly, you know? And so it was for what it was, it was quite ambitious and just definitely for like the studio side of things, they were all like, you know, didn't quite know how to make it for the money. And when I joined it, I, we had to lose about like a third of the what the, they had budgeted. So I'd sort of joined the team to, and then had to go, okay, how do we cut like $15 million out of wow. it sort of thing, you know? And, um, and so then we went into shoot, it was tight for what it was. And, and so every day was tight. And then each on the, the visual effects elements and all that sort of stuff, it wasn't like a much room to, to try things and sort of, there was no like fluff you know yeah well movies like this are a gift in the current landscape because it's so rare that studios actually step up and back original sci-fi um so i mean it's a shame they ripped 15 million dollars away from you but i'm kind of glad that they gave you whatever they did so and they actually backed this concept and you as a director to get this movie made yeah totally you know there's so few of them and so it was like and i think that's why it was teetering on the edge and why they had to make sure they made it at a certain number and um they were confident about it and they sort of backed and forth through it you know till it was green lit and, and we were going they definitely weren't like completely confident because it's like there's no ip behind it but you're in quite a sci-fi conceptual fun world and so that part of it is like they they definitely don't take risks in that space if they if they unless they have to you know they're trying so hard not to and it's so it's cool being like one of the very few movies where they do you know yeah you must have put together a package that was undeniable because they'll they'll find a way to say no and, and avoid the risk if they can but i'm interested totally. to to hear more about the path that that brought this film to life and brought it to screens around the world. But I think probably the best chance to do that will be while we watch the thing. So let me give everyone at home a second to queue up their streaming service of choice and uh, we'll hit play in three, two, one. We are away with love and monsters. And I don't want to get bogged down in the boring stuff. I'd rather pivot to, you know, the creative side of it, but I am interested, like, you know, we're seeing the Paramount logo up on screen mm. now, but also the Netflix logo. And so I know in Australia, it was an, it's a Netflix, it's branded as a Netflix original, but you guys were really planning to do a big wide theatrical release and deservedly so. And then the pandemic happened, right? Can you give us a bit of exactly, the, yeah. that side of it, how, how that must've felt to get, you know, that news on top of the news that all of us were dealing with <laughs> pandemic hit. Yeah. I mean, so it was, it was just a, there was no Netflix involvement in making it, you know, it was just Paramount and obviously E1 and these other logo front logos you see. Um, but the, yeah, it was a theatrical worldwide release was the plan. And then obviously the pandemic sort of pushed stuff along and then they pushed it again further along and then, it was actually going to come out still theatrically in Feb this year everywhere, uh, which is like a long Valentine's weekend. 
Um, and then in about September last year, they just thought Paramount was like, I don't know, like maybe it will still, we'll still be in a similar situation at the start of 2021. And we can't really just let the movies all sit for ages, you know? Yeah. And I think because they've got movies like Top Gun and the new Top Gun and like a lot of been the Mission Impossibles and whatever, they've got bigger ones where I think they sort of go, we'll wait a year or a year and a half longer to make sure we can release these. But just because of where it sits, it's kind of in the middle and there's not an existing audience and stuff. It's like one of the ones where they just felt, you know, keep it moving. We've got to release it somehow. Well, there's a um, real commercial opportunity there too because I know I watched this one during lockdown in LA and I think I paid the premium price to rent it on Apple because there was just like, you know, you, you were desperate to see new content. And, and you guys really offered something up at a time when there was very little not uh, much being yeah, exactly released. not yeah. much in this like entertainment space with genre yeah. and fun and sort of balancing all the tones definitely nothing there you know so i think in that way it was good um well so i have saw- to ask about the yeah. the opening credits then like because you know the, this is so beautiful was this something that's in the script as a very efficient way to get exposition across or is this something you discovered through the editorial process yeah, no, this was in the editorials, actually a little bit of from test screening the movie. So we didn't have anything up front in the first time we screened it. And there was more info that came out through the film, through dialogue and stuff like that, especially from Michael Rooker's character, Clyde. There was more he chatted about that filled us in on stuff we didn't know. And I always liked it on the script. It was a bit like you were just basically coming up now as we're in the dark, this point here, this is how the movie started. Right. So... It was just a guy in a space that then as you watch another minute, another two minutes, you're like, okay, he's in a bunker, but why is he in a bunker? And then why are there weapons? And why are they there? And then suddenly there's a breach and then there's a creature and you still haven't built any world out, but based on what they're talking about, you're slowly going, okay, they can't come out. He's talking to colonies across. So it was more interesting in that way because you, you're building it from just a guy lying here with people making art, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so the world sort of built itself out. And then when you went out, you didn't know what to expect. And then um, as you went along, you sort of learned more about the story. So it read better and it was more interesting. But at the same time, the problem that came up was like people um, asked way more questions and then they didn't get the answers they sort of wanted. So they got certain answers and not other answers. But then from building up the beginning of the movie in their mind of going, okay, well, if they're doing that, then it means the monsters must be like this. And because they're right. living like this, it means this. And so they built the theories, but then later on went, oh, the answers are kind of different to what I expected, but now it's not adding up to what I thought the answer should be. And um, because it was never supposed to be complicated about it, it almost just took all those questions away to just put it up front and almost overdo it and just make it like, that's what it is now watch the movie, you know? Yeah. Um, which was a tough one to, to kind of make that call. But then when we did it, I think it was the right thing because the movie's not about the complexity of the backdrop, you know, of like what actually happened and stuff. It's, it's kind of silly, you know? So um, That's it's so funny though, because things like, like Quiet Place will do that and not give you any answers as to how anything, but for some reason, I guess tonally the kind of movie it is, or I'm not sure what it is. People aren't, you don't go, but no, wait, none of this makes sense. Like, where did they come from? How did they go there? Why did, you know, why is it like this and blah, blah, blah. But for some reason in this state, a lot of the audience did. They had a lot of questions they wanted answers from, you know. 
Well, there's so much to unpack there that I'm I'm actually genuinely fascinated by. And and then you know to add the comparison to Quiet Place just kind of uh, thickens the stew of questions in my mind. Uh, yeah. But like you know it's it, it's interesting because it's like it really sets the tone straight out of the gate, right? So it's doing a couple of things at once. Like yeah. not only is it telling you the rules of the world so that you can then just sit back and relax and not make the focus of the story working out what the rules of the world are, but it's also setting up that tone that's so important for this ride. You know, there are there yeah. are many movies that are about you know, their their plot or their um, the, the the world building but this is really more about character and adventure yeah. and love you're getting to know, you know? joel you're yeah. getting you're kind of starting to connect with someone before you've met them and that was like the bonus so then kind of coming up with that and then making it jolie and character and sort of doing things that get you like in that headspace again okay this is the kind of movie i'm watching you know yeah definitely helps a lot that's fascinating. But so you always had, I assume, the letters that Joel is sort of writing. Yeah, the, there was the... always that in the script, all the letters and, and the voiceover that he would say. We added more and more of that, like not lots more, but we did do a bit more here and there. Um, but that was always part of it. You know, it, yeah, it so always you had started with Dear Amy. It always started with him lying in bed going, Dear Amy, and then telling, talking her through some stuff. Yeah, right. Um, Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. great. You know, you know, you can can't just paint with the 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 colors that are already in the palette, but use it to flesh out another part of the story. It's fascinating to hear um, test screenings kind of positively affecting the experience like that. You know, for a filmmaker, I'm sure it's probably pretty hard to to get notes and kind yeah. of have to you know and, and understand the logic for why things were one way. You know that what you said yeah. about like the idea that the audience is behind the characters. So they're asking questions and leaning forward makes a lot of sense on paper. Uh, but then, yeah. you know, when you actually get it up on its, it's always feet, different. Yeah. It's for some reason, just the way things combine as you're making the film, you holding that perspective is like the hardest part of making the film. It's like, you just don't quite know how things have suddenly all shifted places, like um, in what, where certain things are more emphasized than you originally thought or because some a character is playing something in a different way it's making people think about something in a mm. different way all of it is holding the perspective is like a really challenging part you know yeah holding the perspective but then f being adaptable to what you're actually getting oh, yeah, and exactly. seeing the opportunities in what you're actually getting too like but what while not getting led astray and going down the garden totally. path very very exactly, difficult especially yeah. as you add more and more layers of complexity onto a story or more and more characters like exactly what's going on here in the opening moments of your story where we're, we're you know we're seeing a little culture a little community of people and meeting a lot of different characters you know depending how we feel about these characters is going to color the way we feel about joel leaving them you know yeah exactly uh, and that was a tough balance too like the the original script wise and probably earlier edit wise that they were a bit meaner to him um and especially when he leaves we can tell about when he when he's going but there was like a bit more they thought he was a bit more pathetic and and you didn't get a sense of like oh but they really care about him um and again on the script it felt fine and then something in watching it people at the end you know, I'm assuming people have watched this movie already, so I'm going to give spoilers yeah. because it's otherwise hard to talk about. But at the end, when he decides to go back, making that glue together that people thought, oh, I feel that and I actually feel emotionally connected to them and these guys cared about him and he just kind of left them because he was after this girl. But they were actually his family. 
balancing that so when he left now it felt like yeah of course you gotta go and you're not thinking too much of them but you've set enough up so that later when they're all excited to hear from him and they're generally supportive you sort of emotionally something clicks in place there that was quite a tricky one that's fascinating because um, it was actually something I really noticed watching it for the first time, how it was really refreshing and and kind of there's this great like um, contrast going on between how horrible the world is outside and even how difficult the world is inside the bunker and how tough Joel's situation yeah. is, but then how loving this group is. Like it's sort of unexpected, even relative to the aesthetic. It's so beautifully shot. It's very mm-hmm. atmospheric. And as the sort of imagery we're seeing on screen now as someone's, devoured by a giant monster like it it looks terrible but then you've got this this love yeah. that was uh and his positivity and yeah that, that optimism and stuff i think again it was sort of in the script but maybe it was a bit more a little bit more maybe zombie landish in it being a bit harsher like a right. little less warm warm right. uh, tonally but it was that was quite a big one for me and i also wasn't even 100 percent clear on that that's exactly what i was doing it just comes more from my own personality and dylan's to be honest but like the, that's what made the movie feel different and gave it something else is, is just that it there's a positivity to it and a warmth and it's not, it's not a, I'm trying to think of the word, right world right word, uh, like judge judgy in its comedy or like um, or cynical, uh, you know, it's not like a cynical. There's like touches yeah. of self awareness that's a little cynical, but not. It's never. Joel's never really got like a bit of a fuck you attitude in his comedy. He's actually very nice. He's just nice, you know? Yeah, honest and like and a warm. Earnest. Yeah, and that was that was something that I felt like we hadn't seen in apocalyptic kind of films. And especially when it's end of the world and everyone's struggling and all that sort of stuff. You That sense of if you had a community, you would actually really care about each other. I think I don't, it would be all you have. You almost valid, value humanity more when everyone's gone. And if you saw someone like when he sees Clyde and Minna, there's a bit of a awkwardness and stuff, but there is also like a, there's not many of us left and we got to sort of look after each other versus I'm going to steal whatever you have as soon as yeah. I see you, which is the usual, you know, walking dead sort of stuff or whatever into the world sort of thing. Um, so that was so, to me, I was like, I think this might be more like what we would be actually is, is less is actually appreciative of like human company and that sort of thing. That is really refreshing. And especially, I mean, it, especially at times like these, you know, which are darker times where it is easy to sort of see the the ugly side of the human experiment. Yeah. Uh, but it's especially refreshing in post-apocalyptic fiction, like you're saying, where there is a tendency to just lean right into that darkness. And in fact, there'd be any exactly, number of people yeah. that are like, oh, okay, I can't put that on or handle that right now because it's just too much. Um, I think it's yeah. smart and refreshing to, to very consciously go the other way. Um, I have lots yeah, more yeah. questions and, and the movie is unfolding before our eyes uh, yeah, really quickly. Totally. I want to talk about this flashback we're seeing right now, but before we mm-hmm. get too far away from it, I want to ask about that first monster encounter that we saw where you were seeing the monster through the curtain and then peering up over the yeah. top. It felt like maybe a mix of practical and like some really well done CG with the sort of shadow. I didn't know quite how you were doing yeah. that because it was so convincing if you were pro- literally we projecting to... it on the curtain or what you were doing. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and chat through it quite quick so we can just stay on track. I, I would say <laughs> it was totally a mix and we did tests in pre-prod. I kind of wanted it to be more practical just in terms of not just that we built a head and a front part of it, but not just that, but the actual lighting the shadow work we tried to do some of that but it was like too tricky to get really right so that ended up being like cg like creating a cg curtain there with and redoing the shadow work basically um but we did have the practical which was it it, 
funny enough, there were just a few creatures in the film, only a few that I thought we could try and do some practical stuff. And I, I quite liked the idea of making sure it didn't feel too CG the first one we saw, even if it lent more, a little bit more, I don't want to say B grade, but a bit more like basic, it just makes it kind of tactile. And there was something about that that I thought I'd rather see that early on and feel like that's what we're setting up the monster world as. Um, I just quite like it, you know, What's uh, that it tonal... feels quite real tightrope yeah. sort of choice that you're making right because like you've got this fun like it's dangerous but it's also fun and it's you know the stakes yeah. are real but also it's 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 like it's an escapist movie right it, it isn't too dark yeah. and scary and like you're referencing in a way those sort of like uh classic it came from outer space sort of style monster movies yes. where you've got giant yeah yeah uh, like ants attacking cities and stuff like that so bringing some of the history of practical monster effects into it i think helps people tell helps you communicate what kind of movie this is for the audience yeah yeah I originally didn't didn't want to do a wide i didn't think we would need to do a wide where sort of more legs come out and there's like the one shot where you see more of it as opposed to like just a head and shadow in my eyes, I thought as soon as the head comes through and he closes his eyes, I think that's kind of fine. You know, like he's just, we're not going to see it. And unfortunately, the audience isn't going to get to see much this early. But then in watching it, I sort of, you know, I the thought, mm, you just don't want the audience to feel too much like, are we not going to see a lot in this movie? Or right. uh, are they going to hold out too much on it? Or something like that, because it takes half an hour until we'll see, a, you know, the frog and, and that sort of thing. So we did that just so it felt like we weren't trying to hold out it wasn't too cheap or something you know was that a pivot um, that you were able to make in post-production or was that something you decided yeah, that was before you post. shot it no 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 that was in post so they had built i wouldn't have except that they built the cg creature um it, it, but to do the shadow work they weren't quite gonna and then they ended up doing a lot of it and i was like we've kind of got it now and like yeah. You know, it's simple. It's just a, in terms of rigging, you've kind of done that work because of for the shadow things and stuff. So it's actually not a big deal to do another shot, you know, and it's kind of worth it now that we have it. And we've also have a creature now that, that for some reason you guys put a lot of work onto. I didn't know that that was <laughs> happening in the background. Sometimes I find that difficult to manage on the big, on the bigger scale stuff like this. It's just, you know resources go and i thought oh no i thought it was you would just keep it simple for the shadow but then some guys gone and spend a whole bunch of time doing it way more complicated but now we do have it so it's like we kind of should use it because we have now a full creature that otherwise will not be seen you know um so anyway there was a little bit of that where i thought let's just use it because it it, it kind of opens it up as well and that makes it not feel like we're trying to be too cheap and we got it you know were, were all of the creature effects done through the same house same post it was all done the same place which was a uh, mpc which changed um mr x uh, right. which also all done in australia in auckland Amazing. Um, and it was a new branch when they when they opened it up it was like their first main project i think that they were running through and then they went um, and got themselves uh, an oscar nomination for their efforts right totally amazing it was a huge surprise to us we were like huh what <laughs> did but you dangle really cool, that you know? uh, during production at all it's like you better pull the, your, all, out all the stops no. on this boys you're gonna get an oscar nomination for this thing yeah i wish i could have no i definitely didn't know that at the time just didn't think that this kind of movie would be acknowledged you know oh, but amazing. i think to be honest it's also because of the year it was it was like a smaller year with bigger oh, stuff just take it man get just oh no take i've it. taken it don't worry about that <laughs> but Claim no i just in, in all honestly i think that's part of it you know um 
but it's not to say they didn't do the work that is like really everyone did work so hard to get it to this point you know like i say it wasn't when you're competing against other movies that have had a hundred million dollars just on the vfx or like 70 million dollars you know it's like a whole different world yeah. so they had to work so hard to to the whole team to to make this what it was and i think everyone cared it was like a big part was there um, a, a particular monster or a particular sequence that had the most challenging vfx um well it was the crab at the end you know just in terms of its complexity because of the amount of moving parts of it and the size of it and that it was by far the one with like 70 shots in the sequence or something yeah. i forget where we landed and then i think we actually brought it down but it was always the one where it was like a huge portion of all our visual effects actually sits in that sequence because of the amount of shots of it and it's in broad daylight and it's doing all sorts of things we're going to see every angle on it and um you know it's so that one needed the most time challenging story stuff too right where you have to go from perceiving that character one way to perceiving it a different way uh and it's the same design you know like you have to end up having kind of a weird sort of empathy for that creature yeah yeah um, trying to keep that in the eyes yeah yeah it easier. was actually we can chat about it maybe more when we get there i'll, I'll get some more stories yeah. that are quite interesting about it well maybe um, you can what's tell interesting us... here actually just quickly was yeah, there was quite a bit more bunker stuff we cut out that was more emotional here there was like a couple more scenes of dealing with a bit more loss and going like really reflecting on this place deals with people dying and it's actually really tough and the lives are valuable you know um but it was sort of slowing things down you know we kept that there's like a little shrine scene where you see some stuff and that's kind of all we hold on to but there was there was a couple of other actual little scenes that 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 dealt with the loss of it more and going and made you feel like okay you know this we can't really carry on like this it's not like a, a you know sustainable way to go it's slowly everyone will kind of die yeah um and it's not all kind of as fun as maybe joel's painting it as but it yeah, i think the it slowed the pacing down a bit too much and i think everyone especially knowing it's an interesting one thing about what people will see the trailer and what they will take from that going into the movie they're really painting a picture of a guy who's going to go on this mission for a girl it's almost un, it's almost impossible that that's not going to be in the marketing material so then the audience is sort of going that's where we're going to so the longer you take to just get there everyone sort of knows where you're going so they're a bit yeah. like okay let's go we kind of want him to go and do this thing that way that's why we're watching the movie you know um so that's an interesting one it's been uh, it's been a theme that's come up in a couple of different uh, episodes actually, and I've sort of encapsulated it as a piece of advice, which is like you know you can't build up to your marketable premise. It's like exactly what you just said. It's the the audience signed up and came along and um, have, have hit play on this movie because they expect they've already made that, that decision that arc you know of yeah. whatever this character is going through to get to the point of making the decision to do the thing he's going to go do. They already know what that is, so it's like. Well, not, you don't need to drag it out to get there in a way, you know? Well, I mean, all of the books that, that I assume you read and certainly I read about telling stories were written, you know, a, a couple of decades ago in a time before the internet, like when maybe yeah. you caught the trailer for a movie before you went and saw it, or maybe exactly, you saw totally. one TV spot. But now we live in an era where everyone has definitely seen the trailer before they see your movie. So thinking about it the way you're describing, thinking about the interaction between the marketing yeah. and the movie is really important in the modern modern world. I think. Um, yeah, sad yeah, to leave so, the bunker though, because it's so beautifully designed. What an yeah, environment! Yeah, it was cool. Oh, you know who I worked with on this uh, production designer was Dan Henner, who was yes, like legend Peter Jackson's guy for all the years. You know, 
Um, it was the art director on the on the Lord of the Rings, and then the production design on Hobbits and Thor Ragnarok and Immortal Engines. And uh, I was always from all those DVDs, those behind the scenes and those commentaries yeah. for me were like huge. It was like a big part of film school, you know. Yeah, well, me too. I watched them all so many times. So it was like I knew him. I remember the first time I chatted to him, I was like, it's a bit awkward for me because I actually kind of know you well from like watching those <laughs> things 10 times. Um, but he was so lovely to work with and so cool. Um, such and a really, huge really nice. For the yeah, film. such an and such a nice guy. Like, I mean, he, I don't think he's done a movie of this budget since for like thirty years, twenty years or something. Who knows? Um, so what, it was just really nice. You know? What do you think was it about the pitch that that really reeled him in? Was it good good timing or like the right area, or was yeah, it the script, think, or was it the idea of going back to his roots? Um, I have no idea. I think it was really that he just thought I'd probably seem like a nice guy to work with and the ideas seem really fun and 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 cool to get into and and that he was available and like obviously nothing else was coming up that you know in that in that world that he works in so much which is Peter Jackson's side and stuff. So I think it was just an openness to do um openness to it and that he liked it and and obviously thought that this guy seems like a good cool guy to work with, you know. I think that's kind of probably some of the key is is just knowing that the experience will it's gonna be, be good. enjoyable. Um, but yeah, he was just really, really great to work with. I must say, and his whole team was really cool. While um, we're chatting now, we're seeing Joel, the beginning of Joel's journey uh, as he goes out into the world for the first time and, and getting so many lovely traveling shots and world building shots and, you know, strategic deployment of VFX. Uh you mentioned that you shot this in Australia. Whereabouts in Australia? Yeah. Well, we shot the the studios we used were these new ones in Brisbane. That we were the first people to use them as new, new stages. Um, so there was a little bit of teething issues with that, but it was also like part of uh, cost effectively, you know, for them going, you know, there might be some things that are tricky about getting in here as the first movie, but, you know, then there's also a financial deal to, to doing that. And it was all part of helping us just like get this thing made for what we could do it with, you know? Yeah. Um, but it meant that that was our base. And then, you know, uh, not that it's worth getting into too much, but then to, again, budget, budgetly, we were quite tight with, we couldn't like go travel four hours for locations and, or go, you know, somewhere different in Oz for like a few days and shoot there and shoot here. So we did a couple of places we did, um, but we really had to keep pretty much the whole thing like within 40 minutes from that spot in wow. Brisbane. So we, so we just so that on those days, you know, everyone's still based in the same place. We're not changing our base uh, for the crew to then all have to drive two or three hours to be somewhere. Um, so we had to be pretty careful in location scouting and trying to find everything around that was close but seemed, you know, epic enough. Um, did you have some second so, unit traveling shots or something though? Because some of these, yeah, we did. We did that as you well. Get, uh, yeah, yeah, they we don't, don't look like they're that. forty minutes out of Brisbane. No, there was there was like certain days. Um, there was when we went down the coast further, where there was. Um, more in like the the uh, oh, my brain just blanked the uh, where does everyone shoot Gold Coast yeah so when we went um, we went and did a few days down there and then there were other locations like within 45 minutes or an hour from there that were also open things up a little bit more um, 
but there were some i remember when we were location when we were looking at it at a shooting in queensland and then there were things that were like oh half a day's driveway that were like epic and i was like i'm sure we'll do this and go and shoot this place because i wanted the nature to be big but we really just couldn't so we had to sort of i did quite a bit of vfx uh just simple compositing which were like cheap and easy shots you know just 2d stuff just to build our backgrounds a little bit more right or those sort of things as well as build the monstery things and more that was a big one that wasn't in the script and stuff so much was me just thinking i like the idea of it being quite lush and not like gloomy or doomed or dry or it's actually just the world like life carries on without us and it looks quite yeah. cool um, and quite happy like it's nice seeing a little bit last of us kind of type thing is just seeing things overgrown and the world kind of carrying on without us but then with the monster angle as well and seeing eggs and nests and i always thought i wanted to get into some bigger places but we couldn't but if it was like a small town and there were just it was sort of covered in nests uh, like ant type nests and things i think there's a lot of things there where i thought i can't think of any other movie that has done that stuff worldwide which is really cool you know um so at least i got to do some of that get some of those sort of things and yeah it's smart it's very smart from a world building point of view and, and being able to do it in a kind of budget savvy sort of way you know even in a movie this large um i have to ask about this this incredibly talented dog that we're seeing on on screen now um yes. were you nervous about well, working with 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 animals <laughs> Uh, I'm like such an animal lover. So in a way, I was like one of the things I loved about the script. I just thought it it sort of changes it. Like if he wasn't in it, if Boy wasn't in there, it's like the movie's nowhere near as good, you know, for some reason. I don't know. It's something to do with the adventure and him growing up and having this friend. Uh, it just made such a difference for me that having the dog. Um, so I was always just excited about it. But also, again, with those limitations and the tightness of what we were getting through every day, it was definitely a challenge and we actually had a different dog um, that was training for a couple of months and then got attacked on this bus while it was still oh, being figured wow. out like it hadn't been dressed and stuff but the but the trainer was trying to teach it things and it was still on a junkyard in a, like a junkyard and they didn't know that there were other dogs living in there that kind of cornered them in this bus when they were on there and got into a fight and um, the dog ended up being fine before we sort of it was injured for a few weeks and we just had oh, to like man. make a call and go, uh, we can't do this. You know, it was no one's, I don't think it was anyone's fault because no one, the junkyard people hadn't communicated properly. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the trainer was being uh, irresponsible or something, you know, it was just an unfortunate situation. Um, but anyway, then we got onto this dog and to be honest, it was that he was just kind of a lot sharper, but then it was very much this Australian red dog. And then, so we did this, gave it like some um, other little patterns and little shading in the eyes and on the paw and, and things like that just so it felt a bit more like a mutt and not so much like a red dog um, and, dude there's uh, no better story so that I've heard I think to encapsulate the the hardship of directing a movie than your specialty <laughs> dog has been trained for months and then randomly no, no. gets mauled during a rehearsal <laughs> so I mean what a what a problematic Tuesday what that's not yeah the, exactly i remember it was like we had want. two weeks of shooting and then everyone's like it's not a big deal it, what's funny is i sort of do quite well in those situations like i don't know what it is but when it's not on my shoulders personally as in i didn't like i can't kick myself about it and go oh, you didn't plan enough or you weren't prepping up or whatever that's where the the kind of 
anxiety or frustrations or whatever eat at me but when it's something else like it just suddenly started snowing and that was never going to happen in a funny way I'm a bit like okay well that's the situation now we let's think how we deal with it but when it because I feel like I didn't cause it you know um that's there's something interesting there I don't know that I'm not quite sure why but I always feel a bit more fine about those things I think yeah, it's easier. Like I'm not suddenly got my head in my hands going, oh, this is now we've screwed, you know? Um, yeah, nobody wants so the it, captain saying, you, you know, the ship is sinking yeah. in, in the face. And throwing of the, the papers in the air, kind of walking off going, oh, this isn't good enough, you know? I mean, it just doesn't, you just can't do that, you know? Um, but yeah, so he was great. You know, he could, what was interesting is he could, there were two different dogs, but there was mainly Hera was the in 80% of the movie, 90%. And he would... Um, he could remember just a few things at a time. I forget how many, it was like eight different tricks that would all wow. take a few days to learn. But then, you know, let's say in the movie, there are 30 things he has to done. So scheduling wise, you couldn't really work too much around it, but we had to be aware of it. And because she would go, okay, if we're doing these things in this week, I can't also do this or this. So we either got to not do that in the movie. You know, he's wow. not going to be able to pull that rope or he's not going to be able to run into the water on this command, whatever it is. But, you know, if that's three days later, then I can train it in those three days and then he can do that or whatever it is. And so when things in schedule got shifted, she would be like, I can't, he can't do that task now. You know, I need, I haven't had the time to train for it. Or so there was like a management thing there. And also what was tricky is I love dogs. I always wanted to like play with them or or be engaged. (laughs) Similar with the actors, like you want that connection and I want to be going, that's awesome. And like be able to communicate with them to get extra things. But it was just like, not how you do it, you know? Um, and before we even started the trainer was like you can't really be friends with him and you can't you don't want him looking towards you during takes or anything like that he's basically got to look at Dylan and he's got to look at me and not think about anyone else in the space you know oh that is um, heartbreaking and not something that yeah, I've exactly. before yeah exactly wow. I was like oh really okay so I can't go and be excited with him and feel like I'm working with the dog no I've got to like stay removed otherwise he'll run to me about something and he shouldn't be doing that you know yeah, um, I hope you got a rap party with you and you and the dog. Like yeah. you got a chance no, we to really had meet him moments. at the end. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was I could I could hang out with them a little bit, just not not much. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, yeah. though. You mentioned like the the um, boys' importance to the the tone and the yeah. energy of the film, and I feel like that's really true, right? Because it becomes sort of the story of this guy coming out of his shell and like his life taking a turn for the better and you know we have that great montage there where they bond and then he writes a letter um saying you know that he met he met you know he, this person he got a dog and it you know things are yeah. on the up for him i don't know there's something about it that, that's sort of like very wish fulfilling and it's mm. perhaps not a great comp but i i found myself thinking about seminal amblin movies from my childhood like yeah. the goonies and stuff like that mm-hmm. there's like a real wish fulfilling rip roaring adventure kind of energy to it like did you have tonal comps coming into this that you were like oh i want it to be like this or a little bit of that and a little bit of this um and not specifically because there was nothing that was kind of the same you know there was nothing that was close enough but all of the one things you're talking about spielberg's a huge one for me in terms of just the tonal things that that were, you know, shaped my uh, my want to make movies. I reckon you know, Jurassic Park was a huge one for this. Even though it's not, it kind of is. And I don't know where I would specifically put that peg, 
it's something to do with being in nature and it being tangible and having creatures that you go, whoa, there's like a real creature there. And it not feel like I'm in a a sci-fi movie where anything can happen. They're, like when you, I still enjoy watching the first Jurassic Park because it's still quite tactile and simple. Like the sequences don't have to be that complicated because they probably wouldn't be. That that was like a big approach of the creatures for me was going, just because we can do stuff, we shouldn't, you know? And it's almost like the more we can think about it, either if it was just a big real frog uh, or if we were going to build it, how we would shoot it and what would what would would do, you know? And if it was real, it would get something in its eye or it would stumble on something and it would be a bit slow. It wouldn't suddenly, the creatures shouldn't suddenly whip around trees and take these perfect poses and like the imperfections and the clunkiness and the simplicity is sort of what actually makes it feel more like oh that i'm looking at a real thing um and again there's no specific thing to say exactly what that is but something about jurassic park that's how i still see it where they weren't just doing whatever because they could you know um that's not quite tonal like you're saying but it is still something in order there's a philosophical stuff, kind of know? overlap there for sure i can see yeah. how that guided many decisions through the making of the movie totally and indiana jones goonies all of those are like my favorite actually back to the future was a bit of a reference for this again it's just t so different but it's like for joel it's a it's a it's a character who's got this like open passionate kind of positivity yeah, he's not cynical and he's not it, but i can see it now that you say it there's a very marty mcfly yeah. kind of energy to joel yeah he's cool he's like we love him and he's so endearing and charismatic but he's also not the cool guy but he's also not like a total nerd he's just someone who's got a lot to give and he's quite passionate and he wears his heart on his sleeve sort of thing and that engagement that that presence was a big thing for me of him just being very in the moment even if we went off script a bit or whatever it was and it, it felt natural just the actual like this is a person in this moment doing what he's doing and the audience can connect with that was quite a biggie it's a similar to like um Shia LaBeouf or Shia LaBeouf I don't know how you guys said in in the like the first tran or Transformers or so that alive energy that's like so enjoyable to watch um without being cocky without without going too much like he's got an ego he doesn't have an ego but he's got a lot of pat he's got a lot to give you know absolutely uh, yeah. While we've been talking, you know, we've seen a couple more traveling shots there with some really, and here's another one on screen now with some really uh, judicious VFX sort of world building add-ons. Like we saw a crashed fighter plane in the background of the field, mm. or here we're seeing a, you know, a dead monster on the ground. Like was all of that stuff planned out in advance or would you just sort of shoot things? And then there was a sort of separate pass that you did in editorial and you went, okay, well maybe we add something here and we add something there. Like, um, yeah. How was that process handled? It was both, you know, because it keeps shifting. It was it was pretty planned, and we had like a list of the type of things we'll want to see. And as we were going, we we choosing the locations and 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 saying oh, this could be interesting there. And then in post again, you reevaluate again. And then as you're losing other things in the film, or you've slightly changed edits, then you, you there were certain things where we're like, okay, well we're not doing that over there anymore. Maybe we should bring that idea here. So it was a bit, you know, it's was both planned, like had the ideas. And then, and then some of them evolved and kind of changed as we went. Um, but it was definitely part of the plan was to put as much as we could in, as much as we could afford to. And I was trying to also keep a lot of things quite simple because I know how quickly something can be overly 
uh, indulged in on a cost level of going, okay, we want to do that. And we're going to build it in as like a CG cliff face and whatever, whatever, with all these hives and it's suddenly got a huge price tag versus can we just like comp that in? I, I can find some stills myself or take some stills and, you know, Photoshop some things roughly and go, can we just do this a bit better, but just do that, you know? Um, really smart. And smart to so be mindful much, you know? of like, of the limited resources, right? Like there's only so much firepower there's you can throw so at a much. movie, you know, you need to yeah, decide exactly. where it's best put to work. Um, yeah, and when we did of, those initial budget budget cuts, it was really tricky because it was like a third of the budgets. But I was like, oh, I don't want to. A lot of a lot of the team, you know, studio and producers were quite. The VFX budgets always sort of like a low hanging fruit of like there's monster like a monster checklist because it's that easy compared to the production that's like harder to evaluate and think how to squeeze money around. You can look and go, well, the frog costs us like. Six hundred thousand dollars. Zoop! There we go. That's all <laughs> that. And then the. But I was like, but I don't. That's why everyone's coming to watch the movie. So you also you can't lose the things that that people want to see in the film. So yeah, we just got to get smart about doing it. You know, in certain ways. Um. Well, I feel that especially acutely, like ha having heard, you know, that you had to adjust your schedule around the available RAM in the dogs memory banks you know like oh he can only hold three tricks at a time so you know like juggling that yeah. schedule to reduce days and the knock-on effects of all of that like i can empathize with the producers but you you know you made the right call ultimately that the trailer is going to be filled with those monsters the film's called love and monsters you can't go cutting too many monsters out of it yeah yeah exactly totally um while we've been chatting we just had uh clyde and minnow introduced on screen a couple of incredible casting choices can you tell us a little bit about how they came to be part of the film and actually while we're talking about it uh dylan o'brien too who we haven't even touched on yet yeah i'll start with dylan you know he um he was on uh when i joined so when i was pitching on it so even i mean there's stories before that about just how getting there and getting getting into that situation but he was there uh, not like officially signed on, but he was interested and he was there, you know, when I was, when I was kind of pitching to get, to get on the film, because I didn't write the film or it was, it already had like seven years of life before I joined it kind of thing of wow. trying to get made. Um, but Dylan, you know, I met up with him. We had some good chats and we got on really well and he just seemed so on point. I hadn't watched Teen Wolf. I had just seen his Maze Runner things an American assassin and in my, I was like oh can he do the comedy like what he Joel definitely cannot be someone that's like sort of this younger brooding hero from the beginning it's just not interesting and it's not to the characters he's got to be insecure and got to be he's got to be the person that's going to be quite shit to do this mission he can't be someone we all go he's got it you know yeah um and from the maze runner things and american assassin that's sort of the what had been built and what i'd seen you know there wasn't a lot of insecurity and humor and stuff like that in those but then i watched um teen wolf and he's very different he's a lot more like joel ish but more kind of more goofy and um and he had just great instincts and humor and and stuff and so that was like a good a reassuring and then when we met and we chatted it was quite clear that he wanted to almost go as stupid as possible he was like even when we we're shooting he was he was willing to just be as ridiculous as he could there's so much outtakes and so many things where he just went so far but there was also within letting him go and try and do stuff there's lots of little gold nuggets in the film that were just like this like the way he acts here you know it's really on the edge of being like 
this guy's a complete moron, you know? Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like when you're filming it, finding these tonal balances is so tricky because you're like, hmm. And he'll come to me and he go, do you think people are going to laugh at this as in this guy's an idiot or they are, are with me and it's funny, you know? And uh, it's tr it's such a tricky balance that like, because you, you, you're moving things past reality in, an, in a jokey way, but you're trying to keep the audience connected and on his page and really just liking him even though he might be bumbling that balance is really was was not easy you know but anyway he was he was so cool to work with he just lent so far into all these things and like wanted to be really stupid like ridiculous you know it was great it's fascinating man to hear you describe that you know like uh, as we see dylan kind of reacting to the the rock snail i think it's called right but like his reaction and how ridiculous or not ridiculous it is is connected to the sound design is connected to the way that you're covering it how much of the yes. snail we have or haven't seen at any given time and then the actual design of the thing when it comes up in a frame so like to yeah. balance all of those things in your mind and continue to adjust them through posts and stuff it's a real yeah yeah it's a it's a tight wire it's act. a tricky back balance like for me it's something about it comes sort of naturally that tonal balance but as i like as you get more and you finesse it more and more and you're in that edit and there's really like this you're getting down to the real crunch of small specifics with the sound of music like you're saying and 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 leaning too far one way or other it, it really is hold again it's like holding that perspective is is quite tricky uh, but yeah dylan was i must say i couldn't say enough good things about him because he was so uh in it and then his his instincts filmically like even this we're watching him thinking while he's talking to Clyde, these little close-ups and stuff he has, uh, he has such a, um, a, a like subtle a filmic instincts that really work that aren't overplayed to camera, but he conveys a lot. And he was really, really good. You know, I'm, it's the first time I've worked with an actor um, where I thought this person's better than what I'm thinking about for sure. He's he's adding stuff. There's moments where I'm sort of got better ideas that I want to give to him or whatever. But the the majority of the time, I'm like what I need to not do is mess up the potential of what Dylan could do in this moment. Cause he's a great actor, you know, like he's really doing good stuff. And wow. um, I almost have to protect him from certain other people involved in the production at points to go, just let him do what he's doing. I know he's not doing the lines now. This was almost a daily thing. It was like, but just, it's fine. We're, we're okay. You know, we're actually making a cool movie and he's doing such a good job just what we can't do is is kind of be pulling him down from from trying to actually just do the best he can do you know which is which is really good stuff um so there was there was quite a bit of that especially with the humor or being goofy he wasn't quite written as as sort of silly in a way but it just started clicking that it was he's funny and it, and the humor was really working um and a lot of it was coming from dylan eternally and 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 so anyway that was dylan he well was, it's, it's nerve-wracking too for everybody and i'm sure you and whoever's standing by you at the monitor whether that's studio executives or producers or anything right when he's probably giving you a range of options and you know which one you're going to use like it's oh it's more take two than it is take four um yeah but not everyone's seeing that edit in their mind just yet and not everyone's seeing this exact same movie and that's one of the hardest parts of art making the making films i find is like getting making sure everyone's on the same page and even the same page is this such small differences about being on the same page but when you don't have the time and you're there and you're just doing two or three takes it's kind of like 
you've got to try and get there but then you also have a you know a studio executive and producer and people who are like oh i'm not sure and it's like but we have to harness you sort of have to trust that i that myself and dylan are uh are getting something here that's special you know uh, but it's very tricky you know it's not i think once you've earned it like if you're on a, a taiko rtt set and he's doing some funny stuff everyone's going look at how great he's just doing his yeah. thing and it's going to be so great but for me it was like i haven't done it so i'm also myself and dylan think this is like we're making magic but we're turning across and someone's kind of going what are you guys doing you know and so that was that was one of the hardest things through the whole thing for me to navigate is making sure everyone was happy studio producers my but me and dylan because we very much felt like a team felt like we're doing a good movie here you know um well if was, i can steal a, a, a second from your commentary track to tell a story mm. from edgar wright i remember um hearing him say that when they started shooting Shaun of the dead uh, he was always asking for all of these insert close-up shots to make little montage moments to tell the story and of course, yeah. the first AD was like, you don't need that. Like, let's just, you know, get the drama. Let's get the meat and potatoes. And then a few weeks in, and he was, Edgar was always fighting to get those close-ups that became such an iconic yeah. part of his style, right? Totally. But once everybody saw an assembly of those scenes and they could get it, they were like, oh, this is really important. Like, that's the movie. Um, yeah, but yeah. not everybody can see that all of the time, uh, you know, ahead of time, yeah. right? You know, you You've got to kind of have that faith. But if you haven't earned that faith, it's also hard for you to assume everyone else who's also risked a lot and put a lot in. It just has to go, okay, do what you think, even though yeah. I'm not sure what you, if you, I'm not sure what you're saying is right. So, kind of earning those stripes is a tricky, you know, tricky first What's movie or two, I think. It's nice to hear that Dylan was really on your side and, and an ally though, because, you know, having your star believe in you and believe in what you're doing yeah. is probably one of the most important things. Yeah, exactly. And we were really on the same page. It was, it helped all the way through. And in many ways, because the movie rested on him and he, he had nothing to lose in that he didn't really care what anyone thought, not in a mean way, but just in a, in like a, if he just thought something was better and it's coming from an honest place, he would just happily defend that with anyone and go, I don't think we should do that because it's just not funny, you know, or if a note was coming to him and it was me coming up and going, oh, can we try one like this? And I didn't really want to, but the studio had come up or someone and said, please, can he just get one like this? Cause we're worried. And I'd go and he would say, why? And I'd try and kind of fudge an explanation, but ultimately go, you know, they just want to see another one. And then he would just look up over my shoulder at everyone back there and go, not doing it. Couldn't be, couldn't give a shit, you know? <laughs> um, and so in a way like that helped me, it helped me gain confidence as well. Again, for someone in the first movie studio situation where I wanted it to go well and didn't want to become the enemy of the studio producers or whatever it was where I, the, those relationships are so important. And yeah. um, like him being able to stand up for stuff for me as well often and go, Michael wants to do it like that. And it sounds way better. Can we just leave him alone? You know, whatever it was, Wow, there would de be definite moments like that. And so we just had a great relationship. Um, Can I but ask? I was going to say there was a couple of things earlier just so I don't forget about what oh, we're please. just, just yeah, with improv and stuff. There's that funny scene we, we passed like two minutes ago where Minnow is doing the target practice and then she's like doing the voice for the tree. Um, <laughs> you know, that was almost completely improvised. They were doing the, the target practice, but then we were just playing and I was, because I'd started realizing that Minnow, this actress, Ariana, was actually really great and her and Dylan worked so easy together they could both just completely go off in their own direction and it would be good to watch which is really hard stuff you know you don't find it that often but anyway yeah. i was like 
do you know tell them it's your girl you, your girlfriend's dying tell them like the broccoli thing blah, blah. i just throw little things and then she was like just making it all up and and in the funniest way and it just made like such a good scene versus it was originally her going i'm gonna kill you and then that was the line and then he shot the target or something and it was like there were just many many times making the movie where it was like that where we were like this should just be better than what it is you know it's fine it's not going to jump out at anyone as not good but everything should have the potential to be a scene that's actually quite memorable and it comes from an honest place it comes from like the actors or the moment just giving something extra that feels slightly unpredictable or a bit more honest or whatever you want to call it it just needs to go somewhere and not be too straight you know yeah um so anyway there were a lot of those. to get a young actress like that that can improvise and, and yeah the she was so good to this, the project she was really good i might we were there was between her and this other actress after seeing a lot of people and it was tricky because ariana definitely had the most to give and and she was so had so much but i was like is she too precocious you know, I was like, I was worried about that thing where it's like kid actors are always really precocious and bossy. And then they're going to grow up to be 15 year olds that are like real asshole. You know, who wants that person <laughs> as an older person? Is it a good message? Basically, like, is it do should young kids want to be like her and be a bit of like a bossy nerd or which is like a classic kid thing because adults like to see it in movies or, you know, yeah but ultimately for her it was right because her and i like that she bossed clyde around and that he was almost like this big bear that was really kind of soft but seemed hard but she was sort of is like kind of the boss of them and keeps them alive keeps them mentally alive with a lot of energy you know um anyway well it's a tonal choice again isn't it right but it, it sort of fits in with that sort of goonies atmosphere or something like you know the, yeah in reality a young kid in this situation could just completely retreat inside themselves and be terrified and have an anxiety yes, or, yeah, you yeah. Know, disorder or something. Right. And, but like, if you go the kind of more back to the future direction, you can make a more interesting yeah. choice and, and have this character that goes, well, the other way it could go is she'd have to be really strong to survive. And you meet this character yeah. that has the right sort of skills and strength to be able to rise to this challenge. And she's found the right kind of partner in Clyde to bring out the best of her. Um, totally and this is her world she's like 10 or 11 she doesn't know that much difference so this is it like the fun things that happen in this world or things she finds and stuff that's the equivalent of our world of a you know 10 or 11 year old getting a toy or getting whatever it might be she's not do it's not all doomed you know this is just yeah. her this is just where she's at you know um and you then Clyde you know, yeah oh no please yeah. tell us about Clyde I was just just while we just before moving on from them. So he was lovely, you know, like he was we he didn't cast for it or anything just because we all know who he is and just thought he would be really great and give a good great energy. And I like that he was he's someone who you perceive to be quite bad and quite suspect of to a degree, just in his energy. So it just brought a layer there that wasn't too fatherly and warm when we meet him. You know, I think just based on or the way the audience knows him from, you know, Walking Dead or Guardians of the Galaxy and that sort of stuff. Um, so I thought that's good. And then you sort of open up, you kind of earn his respect a bit more as you go and you realize he's got this kid who's not even his kid and he's doing the best he can. He's actually a really nice guy. So it helped that little bit of an arc rather than meeting someone we cast that was too warm off the bat, that was sort of fatherly. Um, and then he's nice to listen to like the way he talks because that's all Clyde really is is you know this 15 minute section where he's talking for 
50% of the time, it was like, who's good to listen to and take advice from? And not just as a personality, but the actual voice itself is like a mm. nice, he's got great character and flavor while they're walking and we're in wide shots and we're listening to him talk. And so that was sort of the choice there. Of, and, and he was just so lovely and very different to what you, he is in films personality wise. Um, just a really nice guy to work with. Now, as you wrap up the speech about the incredible Michael Rooker, uh, we're seeing this horrific centipede come out of the ground or millipede yeah. maybe. Uh, what a sequence, you know, you actually had me worried in this, that the, the dog <laughs> might get it or anyone might get it. Like it's a, a real triumph. Uh, and it's a triumph of VFX too. And, and maybe some practical stuff slipped in there. Can you tell us a little bit about this sequence yeah. and the, the importance of it to the movie and how on earth you executed it right down to the, that beautiful opening shot with the little feet coming up and knocking the feet leaves and all yeah. that sort of stuff. I, it's great. I must say it was probably, it's probably my favorite as a sequence. Um, and it was going into it. I was like, oh, I love this. It was written a lot more like he was doing what he was doing. And then up behind his shoulder, there was a creature out of focus sort of thing that we see. And again, I think it comes from a Spielberg or somewhere thing there where I just like the reveal is almost a huge part of the enjoyment of the sequence. Like, like whatever it is, just coming up with your way of going, like, how is it interesting? Once you see the creature, then there's the creature, you know? Um, and, and hopefully it's really cool and stuff, but something about how you reveal stuff and the, whether it's, you know, with, with Jurassic Park is the water in the cup or like the door handle creaking on the, in the bathroom or whatever, just those things, those ideas that build up and make the sequence more than what it is. So that was sort of the idea with the feet under the ground. And it was like, is it okay that a centipede would be lying upside down on its back? And then that's how it's waiting for prey. And I was like, I think it's just a cool enough idea that let's just do that, you know, yeah. to see the feet and then something curl up. It's just like you, the audience is working it out while you're watching. You could never go, oh, that's what it is. It's sort of got to reveal itself. And and then that's what's really fun about it. Um, and, and I love the antenna and that it doesn't really come across that it's blind. It, it didn't really play because you almost don't have enough to work with. But that was the general feeling is that it can't quite see what so well. So I love the feet, long feelers needed to come Right. and then kind of touch things and find and then um Ooh, anyway all of it you sort just of added adds, a, adds another character. layer of horror to it that i didn't quite clock but i have yeah, to admit exactly. but it's it certainly works as a sequence and and, totally. and i so appreciate it's all visual effects yeah all, all wow. the effects there was nothing really practical there we, we couldn't um this moment here as boy stands up and runs to joel became kind of a contentious one after he survived the the siren basically was quite a contentious one for a bit because it was never scripted. It was just scripted that he shot it and it, and then boy ran to him. And I was always like, well, this is our chance to, for the audience to worry about whether or not he's okay as well. So I was always trying to lean more into that and make sure the heart was there that we actually, these moments were close to having the stakes that we would be actually worried about rather than just breezing past and going, he did it, yay, and boy's fine. So there was the earlier edits, it was like 10 seconds, he like lay on his side and, and was not, he was just, you could see his chest breathing and Joel was like, boy, and you could see him, Terry, stepping forward, looking at the dog and then the dog sort of wimped and just stayed on his side and then he stepped forward again and then he lifted his head and then he kind of slowly got up like he was hurt and then we realized he's okay and he ran towards him. But the studio was like an ongoing thing of going, I don't know why we're hanging in this moment. And I was like, because if the audience actually thinks, holy shit, we've lost a dog, it's 
it's real stuff. It's going to push the movie so much more and people will think there's real stakes going on in the movie that, and I can't believe this just happened, but we're still going to get the reward, you know? And then that, this is where we ended after a lot of compromise was just like a one moment of going, of him as feeling like he whimpers and he sort of steps awkwardly and then runs. And I mean, I think it plays fine, but if I look at it now again, I think one more shot where you were worried about him before would not be a bad thing, I think, you know? Um, but those are the tricky ones where, where with the with the sort of tonal balance where it's like, how far are you going to make it too dark where someone's like, oh, I really don't want this moment to be happening, you know? Um, anyway. Oh, it's fascinating, mm -hmm. man. Like the idea of, um, you know, it's a big commercial in a way. And I say that with love for the format yeah. of commercials and the fact that, you know, a good director can inject a lot of artistry and their own personality into a commercial. But ultimately you do have to answer to to a higher up who's footing the bill right and you, you have to sort of navigate the the game to some extent like that process of of editing this sequence so it it meets your creative desires versus their kind of financial concerns around oh well we don't want people to be afraid that yeah. we killed the dog because then they might be unhappy and then they won't tell their friends to go and see the movie and then we'll sell less tickets or something and you and you yeah. can see the exact same set of data and have an alternate inter interpretation which is well like if they think the dog's actually dead it's scary and it's more of a roller coaster and it's a more dynamic dramatic yeah. experience then that's a positive but yeah navigating that with with a studio is, is is a tricky game a tricky dance and and, so, and to yeah, come away yeah. with something that feels as personal and distinctive as this does is a real feat because you know the common complaint against studio films is that they're focus grouped and and researched to death um yeah. to the point where they just sort of becomes bland but this sort of has its own idiosyncratic humor and and risks and surprises uh all the way through into the finished result so it's a it's a kind of yeah. real testament to you i guess well done sir. and the heart is a big part like just looking at what we on the mavis kind of halfway through this mavis robot scene as well like this is such a this was always in the script this sequence and it was always such a good one in in that it was like it's just like you don't actually even need it in the movie to a degree in terms of story plot there's like one or two small things that happen here that move things forward on a story level um but it was like it's just a like a poignant scene for some odd reason it sort of seems jokey and then becomes emotionally uh yeah resonant you know and and you don't necessarily need it but it was just it felt really good and that under slightly unexpectedness for the audience uh being more emotionally engaged and they thought also like goes a long way it goes a long way for the overall experience of the movie to for people to come out of it and go that's a better movie than i thought it would be just because it had a bit more sincerity or a bit more heart than i think people yeah. assumed it would have you know um but technically also just to jump on that one like the mavis was an interesting challenge because we everyone ultimately going in was sort of wanting to try and go the cg robot route the way they wanted to do it was to have you know, if someone playing it in a suit with the green dots or the the gray suit with the dots on uh, and then us replacing it. But then myself and the VFX supervisor, as we sat there and were like thinking about it, we kept thinking, I don't know. It's also going to be a lot more expensive because there's a lot of shots on it and it needs to be really good. Like the last thing you want to do is feel like this is a CG robot. Um, and so we tried with different ideas and what we could try and pull off. And then we, we no one else kind of thought that the idea would work, but it's basically a puppet. Um, there's someone standing. So now we're in the car, the scene where they've just gone outside and they're sitting against the wall. 
And so what it is, is it's a person in a suit, a blue suit behind the, like it's like a mannequin puppet of a robot that's just got their hand in the back of its head, moving it around and then has a rod attached to one arm to be able to lift and move the arm. And then so he, with the, both of those, he could slightly shift the body and he can turn the head and he can control it. And then we had the lights for the eyes, but they weren't animated. Um, and then we added for, for, let's say there's like 40 Mavis shots, like seven of them, we did a CG hand so that there was just more complexity in the, in the like animatronic of the hand. And it made it feel like less uh, clunky, you know? Um, and then the eyes obviously give it a lot more line, but that was pretty much it. And we had two nights to shoot this whole, like it's like 10 minutes of the movie with the practical puppet at night with the rain, all the, all the stuff. It was such a tricky one, but fortunately the puppeteer, the way we did it was we had this Australian actress. She plays the mom in Bluey, <laughs> and which wow. I only found out later. And she's the actress. Her name's Melanie Zanetti. She was in the in the colony at the beginning. She's the one who lost Connor, if you were able to piece together who's who. But she's the one who looks at him across the table before he leaves. Um, and she's the one who hangs the hat up. Oh, I don't even know if that was still in there. Anyway, um, Melanie Zanetti. So she played the voice of and it's the voice from the set is what you have here. Oh, we didn't so read ADR or anything. Great. So good. And um, anyway, she was in a different room acting out in these scenes with the puppeteer puppeteering. Um, but what we did before is we shot a rehearsal with the Joel and Melanie sitting in two chairs like three weeks earlier than, than we actually did the scene, just acting it out a few times and her playing the robot for whatever she thinks would be right. And and Joel being able to play the scene so we could see what he would probably want to do and the tone of certain moments. And then the puppeteer had that video to then look and create the performance, you know, and, and have the ideas of how to act that moment. So then on the night, you know, it still took different shape and Joel's always, Dylan always improvised a little bit and changed things up, but they had a groove. And then we, you know, it was a lot to get through in, in two nights of shoot, but, um, it worked out Crazy. well and the robots like great you know i really like the look and feel of it and um came together well how many nights or well, how many days was your shoot entire uh it was 40 in, in uh, total which is not yeah. bad but it's also for a movie like this where every scene is like or sequence is a different location that's where it yeah. really weighs up and there's a lot of characters and stuff so there's just a lot you had to do and dog and child or all of that <laughs> part also like just makes it trickier, you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, to, to nerd out on robots for a minute longer, because, you know, it is my yeah. field of interest. Uh, the You mentioned that the face wasn't animated, but there were some great moments there where we see the interactive lighting on Dylan's face and, and then when yes. the robot blinks, it goes away. So is that We had the blinks were... in real. We had right. blink. I think I had a blink button. I can't remember. But with the blink was real just so that we, there were moments like that. Um, but we chose, we originally wanted to be able to dim and brighten at moments. But the thing is, we were like, I think emotionally knowing exactly what she'll do with the eyes is too, we're trying to bite off more than we can chew to have it all pre-planned yeah. and figured out. So we'll just leave them at a mid-range of brightness because it's what's lighting the scene almost the whole time. When they're inside that room, it's the only, there's a very thin moonlight that's not doing much. And then she's like, her eyes are actually lighting the scene. Wow. Um, so we, so we tried to not overcomplicate it for ourselves. And then, you know, in post could slightly drop the light on him if we needed to for as the eyes do things. Were the sky jellies always in the script or is that something that you, you they were always like a there, like yeah. this needed? Yeah, no, they were always there. Um, 
and then we had so this again it was tricky now because we had the bigs the rigs for the rain and then we had those were like big moving lights on cranes too so we could have movement of the of the light wow. uh soft colored light from the jellyfish that to like come up at the right times and down and sort of oh, fade wow. in and out um but it, it fortunately it sort of came together and, and then when there were things that wasn't quite right we were like we'll just figure we'll make it work and you know um in post we'll fix it <laughs> we didn't um, talk too much about the actual design of the the creatures and like uh, you know this will mm. be a millipede here and these will be sky jellies there like where, was all of that kind of in the script as well and then what was your yeah, design were... process like did you do that with uh, mr x or was that a, a different facility to do the monster design no they we did them like it so there were the creatures were in the script some were quite clear like the frog you know exactly how it would look and stuff but there was a giant toad in a pool um um and then like this one coming up we're, we're sort of leading into the queen lamprey sequence of the fin so the idea that there was a this thing had a fin and it was like a giant lamprey type creature was what was in the script um and the sky jellies, but there wouldn't be any explanation except that they would glow or something like that. Um, and then some other ones like the siren centipede, that was more of a, it was like a centipede mixed with a, a praying mantis, which was always quite interesting, but we ended up going more, just more centipede-ish. Um, but so I did in my pitch, in my initial sort of pitch to direct the movie, I did a lot of the creature stuff. I'd like to go and look at lots of concept art and other things and and then get my own creatures and I'd get lots of, I did like big mood boards of skins and eyes and things like that. Then I'd, not for the pitch, because I don't think they're very interested in that, but in terms of being able to like layer different skins onto creatures or different eyes and slightly reshape things. And so I did a bit of my own concepty work. And then we got concept artists before in pre-prod and stuff to to design them so we knew what they were going to look like for the shoot and i'd say they're all pretty much like 90 percent what they were and then so then when it went to mr x and then them they they sort of brought their own embellishments and and like further details and stuff too but we we had the ideas there you know um from pre-prod uh we wanted to be pretty clear on that stuff um yeah through this sequence here that we're seeing as Joel kind of flees from this underground creature and we're seeing the earth distort and moments before mm -hmm. it bursts through a caravan, it feels like there's definitely some moments where like maybe you shot some elements practically like dirt shifting or the caravan exploding or is all of that CG as well? That was all. Caravan exploding was one were on the day and I was like, be pretty cool if the caravan could explode when you <laughs> yeah. as opposed to just coming out the ground in front of it and the vfx supervised like I, I was thinking about that too we'll see how we go kind of thing um and then that was always a joke one where he would go like but in the background we might i'm still working on having a caravan explode but don't tell anyone else um so so that was we didn't have anything there you know um and just talk about this shot, actually, it's just as this creature goes back, comes out and they're hiding in the tree and then it goes back. It's one of the key long shot moments yeah. where I initially didn't want to cut at all and just have this long take because it just feels extra scary to just have it play. And especially because you've got a dog and he's got to hold the nose. And it was it made it quite an iconic moment. I felt like this will be quite a memorable one because it's the two of our key people in this like very simple but monstery moment. Um, but that shot was one I handed over. This is how long certain parts of it took. You know, it was like this was 
just a week into shooting, we were shooting these scenes. And a week or two later, I had to hand over development shots and go, this is the take we'll use for the film. And wow. I hadn't even gotten into the thing just to get everything moving along and make sure the development was going to be good. And, uh, and then it was, you know, only in the last, and then it was, you know, eight months later that we were trying to finish the film. And right at the end, it was like a week or two before I was trying to still do those shots of the- oh, That's amazing. The I just have to name check that particular shot there as the monster explodes, jumping out of the oh, ground, yeah. grenade in the mouth, and then it explodes. That's it's a so good well one done. too. That was also so an early one at the same time we handed it in months and months before because we were like, this has to be a good one. Um, but it, that part was quite tricky for me to make those calls and go, we'll use this take and go for it and do the work. And then things did take longer and, and like right at the end, sometimes it was enough time and things really got well developed. But I was quite big and finicky when it came to the dirt and the, the other things, the interactions and making sure there was a good connections with all that stuff. I felt like that was what was selling it, the tactility of things, you know? Yeah. Um, and and um, the dirt one there was on the edge. I still had a handful of notes that we could never do on those those main shots. If you if you go through it slowly, you you'll be like, hmm, there, there's certain things that are not quite there. Well, it's certainly, um, it certainly but holds it's such up. a tricky shot. Yeah, and and you also get when you're working on it, you get too uh, in it, you know, and you're really like focusing in on stuff that people are just not probably going to notice. Yeah, especially when you're caught up in the story of, you know, is our main character going to survive? Is the dog okay? And all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's exactly. the director's job to care about every little detail and push as hard uh, for as long as they can to make the best film possible. Totally. These leeches that he's pulling off now, these were all practical. And they were good fun. Ugh. I hope you've got um, a few of them sitting on your desk somewhere at home. I should have kept them. They don't. They kind of look a lot better when they gooed up and, and all <laughs> like that. Without it, they sort of just look like turds <laughs> you could goo it up every morning as part of your daily ritual you know make yourself yeah, a coffee coffee on the desk goo, goo up your <laughs> leech did you get any keepsakes were there any things that you got to take away um, from the film i should have taken more i took a few things there were a few like little interesting props that were on the bus uh like things that the person who the girl on the bus that that would have lived there like made these there's a there's a frog and there's a boy that's like a fluffy version that you put it together I like the, those. I t I've got a uh, Joel's wardrobe. I've got a, uh, a set of that. I wanted the crossbow, yeah. and they, were, they said they were going to send me the crossbow, and then and then we we're still going to do pickups. And they said just wait till afterwards because there were like three or four different types, and they just didn't want to make sure they give me one that I break, and then we actually need it. Um, and then afterwards, I never asked again, and I should have. And I, 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 I missed out on having the crossbow. I think that would have been the best thing. Oh man. Well, it's you know, it's not yeah. too late, you know, fire off an email, yeah. see if it's still out there. Yeah, Some bloody I art department should. guy's got it above his fireplace though, yeah. probably. eBay. Yeah. This is such a cool <laughs> effect we're seeing here as he's sort of tripping poisoned out. by the leeches and tripping out. It looks like the Google AI sort of dreamscape effect or something. Yeah, that we this was one we didn't quite know what we were gonna do. Like the script wise, it just said he felt poison and he fell on the floor and and uh, and that was kind of it and he couldn't breathe. It was so the whole part of him sort of tripping and it being slightly fun and a bit way out and then realizing, oh, shit, it's dangerous, as well as the talking plant that I'm looking at now. <laughs> talking plant wasn't in the script. Um and and it wasn't it was just something in my head where it was one of those things where i was like if i try and explain this stuff too much to everyone i think they're all going to say don't do it i'll keep yeah. it sort of vague 
and uh, and 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 just make sure I'm making sure everyone knows I'm getting the scene. So don't worry about it. But I've got some ideas here. I think will be quite cool. And again, do something slightly different than probably people are expecting. Yeah. Um, oh, it's great. It's a, but it becomes the, the, a great the technique of of the the ch the the changing the hues of the colors mixed with sort of the bubbling jelly uh, uh, distorting thing. That was really just a trial and error with with some VFX guys trying without, again, we couldn't, it was just, we couldn't apply much money to it. So it had to be very simple sort of 2D stuff. Um, and so that we just tried different things and a lot of it wasn't working and I was going, oh, this does not look good. And then we slowly found a balance of what what pulled it off enough, you know, and then the sound and things as well. And then all that kind of brings it together. It's a pretty intelligent strategy that you sort of like mentioned in passing there, the idea that like, you know what, I can get what I need here without having to communicate it to everybody. It's probably simpler for me to just, you know, get the pieces and then let yeah. them see it as it sort of comes together. Like, uh, are there any other sort of survival tips and techniques that you sort of either learned along the way or had told to you before you sort of embarked on doing your first studio picture? Like, what would you tell somebody setting out to make their first film or, or their first studio film? That's uh, a good one. Yeah, the, the, uh, from being in South Africa, you know, I wasn't connected to that many people to really talk to. The only person I, I get in contact with was um, a South African director called Gavin Hood, who won an Oscar like 20 years ago for Tsotsi. And then he went into uh, some kind of biggish sci-fi films that didn't really work that well, like the one Wolverine movie and Ender's Game. And and then he went back to doing more independent thriller, like Eye in the Sky. And, and he's made some, he's much happier and better in that sort of space. Um, but I spoke to him about it because he'd been through it. And the only person I knew who had kind of come from a place who doesn't know much about it and is then thrown in that world. And he was, his advice was, I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> And, and he Great, wasn't even helpful. trying to joke. He wasn't even trying to be funny. He was just saying it's probably going to be pretty crappy. And when you, he said, when you, when you in a, the space and you think, why am I doing this? And is it me? And this is the worst. This is exactly what I didn't want to be doing, and all that blah blah. He said, that's don't worry about it. That's the best idea I've got can give you is because that's how everyone sort of feels at some right. points you know and it's not your specific journey within the space but personally having gone through it I wouldn't say that I would say you know it's I had a relatively positive good experience overall it was tricky and there was a lot of me earning my stripes for things I hadn't approved to a degree but I can't assume everyone else is just going to buy into me thinking I know what I'm doing you know yeah. um, but it was like one of the best things I th uh, that I did going in, and this isn't, I don't, you know, everyone's got to figure out their own thing was I just didn't want to go come out the film being tainted as someone who was really difficult to work with and who's someone who people wouldn't want to work with, whether it was from the studio side or the, the producer side, um, because they've all got huge relationships. They've got a world of movies. They'll carry on doing things and their opinions of me will carry a lot more weight than if I go off the movie and it didn't work out and they all saying this guy was so difficult and the movie turned out crap because he couldn't take notes and whatever it was. Whereas me saying, oh no, they wouldn't let me do what I want. No one will care, you know? Um, so there was a huge part where I was like, no matter how bad it might get or if I'm like, this is, I shouldn't have, this is not what I wanted to be doing. And, and they're just telling me what to do, whatever. Ultimately, it's still best to come out the other side, not having thrown your toys out the cot and and manage the situation as best you can and come out the other side, you know. Um, 
because you can really lose perspective emotionally and stuff when you're tired and things aren't working and you're being beat down and this isn't what I wanted to do or whatever. Um, so I went in with that as quite an expectation of assuming there were going to be times I'm going to really struggle. And it wasn't too bad. You know, it was hard, but it was uh, it was also awesome. And um, I guess I knew the sandbox I was in is that it's not my it's my movie as a lens through telling it and I'm the person who's got to balance it the best and everyone hopes that I'm making the best movie but it's also not my money it's a lot of money and yeah. these guys have made a lot of movies and they have a different point of view of what does and doesn't work and I have to try and take all that stuff on board as well as if I'm so sure about something I have to try and convince them of it in the best way like articulating stuff is so important like being able to explain why something will be funny even though you've talked about it seven times and they keep saying it's not funny that's it's pretty soul destroying but it's also what else can you do you know um, but being able to articulate it is like so key and and be convincing so they go yeah sounds great sounds really funny you know but like the tripping out scene i just thought i actually don't quite know if it'll work totally will it or won't i think it could be great but it's not worth me you know dying on my sword to get into it and say we have to do it and stuff when i don't actually know that it is that great or, you know what i mean yeah um so there's a lot of that too, where it's like choose the battles um, of what's really going to have value and uh, and know and like I knew I didn't know everything and that that a lot of these guys I was working with have been through a lot of cool movies and made good stuff, so they have a lot to offer as well. Um, Another survival technique that you sort of mentioned uh, earlier in the commentary was the, you know having a a main actor that's really on your side and backs oh, yeah. you. And, and actually, I was talking to a friend who is about to direct his first movie the other day and and he was talking about building that rapport with cast and, and how important it's uh mm. it's got to be I, i'm interested to get lost in the weeds for a minute can you tell us like yeah. uh, you know what your first interaction with dylan was like and then how much time you had with him before you started shooting and like how you really built that rapport because you could have been in a lot of you, you would have ended up with a very different movie if if dylan didn't oh, believe I, in you, I would have know? had the worst experience if me and dylan weren't on the same page that's for sure you know it was the same with the first film i did with the actors and being on the same page a lot of it's me also getting on their page it's a two-way street so yeah although i'm the one who spent a whole lot of time thinking about the movie and think i know what things should be is someone else is also coming with a whole different skill set that's that has been chosen for a reason because they're great and because i because that you know have so much to offer so it's like trying to make the space for that for that to flourish as best it can without it going off course you know so often i think dylan can feel that like he knows i'm not going to say stuff to him just because i think it should be my way or because i had an idea and i'm sort of cutting his legs off when he hasn't been able to like do something that he thought would be funny anyway you know and and so i think as soon as he's feeling supported or generally with actors i feel like they just want to feel that they're being supported and well guided and then there's that range of going some actors actually don't want too much direction don't they kind of need the space to do what they're doing and then you can kind of come in and try and chat about what they're doing a bit more and then other people like michael rooker was a lot more like tell me what to do 
you know, and there's no ego attached to it at all. He, I can just go in and go, you look a bit stupid when you're doing that. Even And some actors would take a huge offense to a moment like that or something because they've really thought about it. Whereas he's like, oh, geez, why didn't you tell me? Why you even let me do one take looking like an idiot, you know? <laughs> so some people can be just loose and know there's no ego. And then other people, it's like a real craft that they're trying to do and they're trying to show you something so that you can go, I love it. And it's so good. Or here's a few notes. But what's key is like knowing that I'm that you're in that headspace with them and you're not on a different plane trying to move them away from something where they're like I've spent so long trying to do something here that I think is really good and you're actually just not even seeing what I'm trying to offer you you're just trying to say okay but let's do this you know uh, so the, and there's no it's all like gray area that's the trickiest part and then you've got what I find tricky is sometimes when you've got multiple actors on the set and they're all of different personalities and then you're kind of coming in and over giving someone notes where it's not someone and you're just trying to keep that vibe good you know and the balance between them yeah I, I don't know it's like there's no science there it's just I, I, for me personally the worst thing I can have is them not feel good about what's going on that's almost a priority outside of me getting what I want is is making sure that they feel like they're in a good space to be doing the best they can, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I can see how that would translate pretty effortlessly, like just in the way that you sort of can speak about it now, that that kind of compassion for the acting process and that desire for everyone to to perform their best and for you to give them what they need to, to really deliver on the day. And in the fact that you're sympathetic to the fact that they all have different needs. I, I have no doubt that everyone felt well supported. Yeah. And that's part of why you were able to kind of create, you know, scenes like the one that we're seeing on screen now, but I am interested, particularly when it comes to mm. like your lead cast member, I can see how from the moment to moment interactions, like between takes and the morning of like, you're going to be injecting you and your own style into those situations and conversations and kind of, yeah. uh, you know, fit with the philosophy that you're describing. But what about before the projects even started? Like you've pitched on this film, you've convinced the studio. Do you then have to convince your leading man or does that happen first? Did you have to make I didn't Dylan for before? this, you know, I didn't, there was no convincing. We just met, I guess what the key is meeting and, and, uh, uh, we were both feeling good about each other. You know, he also got to see the the elaborate pitch I did, which was pretty right. much making the journal for the movie, uh, like a digital version, but more of a pitch. Like it had, it was like it was a book of a pitch, but that was old and worn that then Joel, the character himself had gone and crossed lots of things out and written where things were lame or oh, like wanted great. to change his own notes. And so it was like this piece and then had drawings of the creatures of what was cool about what he liked and what, how you would kill them. And, that sort of stuff and then it, so it went and it went through the world and the characters and had cool visuals like uh, quality visuals in this sort of book but it was ultimately like this worn old book that had Joel's flavor in it where I would be writing stuff as the director and it was almost like printed like an old novel or something and be talking about how it's important that he doesn't get Amy because he grows and stuff and he's like putting then I'd put Joel's lines and remarks going this is total horse shit like I don't want to hear about all this stuff <laughs> it's like I, there's no growth like needed here whatever it was and it just gave it this charm and this flair and him seeing that book I think also made him think this guy really cares about the movie and um, you know is on the same page and then when we met and we talked a lot especially about the presence in the moments. And I was talking about Marty McFly, a bit of Shia LaBeouf, 
stuff, he was very much like, that's like totally what he wants to do is just be in the moment and be able to go, is this funny or not funny? Is it working? I'm going to go and try and do this because I think it'll be great. That presence and that openness is what connected us the most. And I was like, the last thing I wanted to feel like is we sort of setting up and, and paying off little like jokes that are sort of more like gags than feeling sort of honest, like honest kind of more comedy. Um, so we really connected a lot there. And then in the pre-pro process, this was more because I wanted to. And then when he got into it, I think he got more like realized the need for it and the value for it. But we went through the script slowly together over about like six or eight, two hour sessions. Um, and then sometimes we would just get stuck in a point and we'd be talking about a whole other bunch of stuff. It didn't matter, but we were doing a lot of the work that we otherwise maybe on would be standing on set doing where he suddenly like, oh, I thought I'd be thinking about this here, but you're saying it's about this. Hmm. And now we're both thinking we're on a different page, but it's very hard to just click across in that moment to a very different idea. So it was That's a lot smart. of that where we talked through it. And then change lines even then, or he would just make a note and go, I'm probably not doing this line. I'm probably going to say something more like this. And I go, okay, cool. Just make sure he felt like I'm not going to be standing there going, no, don't you change that line. It's my favorite line, you know? Um, so there was just an open communication and then we found each other's humor as well. And there were often times where we were re-coming up with scenes, whether we changed them a bit on the script or not, we were like, it would be so funny if this happened. And then what if you just don't even answer and you just stand there and then we just like take the longest pause. Well, whatever, whatever. And we're both laughing about it. And we found out like our groove of humor of what we thought was funny, you know? Um, and then, the, and then, so then that flowed into the shoot itself and, and, and that, but yeah, I think that's answering your question of just what, yeah, what it, it absolutely like before, does. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's a powerful collaboration and it sounds like you kind of got the time and found a framework to really uh, unleash its power. Speaking of powerful collaborations, one thing we haven't touched on at all is mm. the cinematography in the in the film, and we're seeing some great examples of it now as we're back uh, underground in Amy's bunker. Can you tell us a bit about working with Lachlan Milne and and how that came to pass, and uh, you know how you guys worked between interior scenes where you probably had a lot of control and exterior scenes where you probably had very little control? Yeah. Um, so he, I had met him. Yeah, like about five years before this came along, um, we did a commercial together in Oz. It was a P, it was a P, I was going to say P and G, it was a P and N bank ad that we, that we did together. Uh, and he was just so great on that. And, and we had a lot of good laughs doing it. It was relatively non-stressful, not too complicated. So quite lifestyle-ish, all these different moments and scenes. And he had just a very authentic, natural way of not wanting to like much, but get really good cinematic imagery out, imagery out of moments and I just remember going thinking it was a great experience but there wasn't much more after that and then when we we never had the opportunity to work together again and and then this came along and um he uh he came up in conversation because the producers on Love and Monsters were doing or do Stranger Things and they were working with him on season two and he that was kind of his first more Hollywood. He had done Hunt for the Wilder People, but obviously that still wasn't kind of a Hollywood movie, you know, in its making. Um, but he, uh, these 21 Laps guys, the producers, obviously got a chat in there. He was like, oh, I know Michael. And so somehow they sparked about talking about this project. And then the producer came to, called me and went, what about Lachlan? Would, would you be keen? And 
because I still hadn't crewed up really at all. And I'm, again, it's a new, the studio thing was like a whole new thing for me where I'm like, what am I in for where I'm going to be thinking, oh no, they're trying to pair me up with this like terrible comedy studio guy who's like light, over lights everything and is really on like very heavily glossy Hollywood or something where they were going to worry I didn't have that aesthetic in properly and they were going to want to pair me up with someone or something like that. Um, which was never really the case, you know, those are all the kind of anxieties going into it of me feeling like I'll be out of control. But so when Lachlan came up, I thought, well, he's perfect. I mean, he's not, he doesn't, his stuff doesn't look forced at all or anything. And he's really great, natural. He's worked Hunt for the Wilder Peoples in a funny uh, way is a good touch point for this because there's journey and there's comedy and the relationships and um, so it worked for the studio. They went, okay, cool. We're, we're up for that. And, and I just went, of course, I've worked with them, which is good. And I think his aesthetic and, and all that's great. And so we had a couple of chats. He thought the script was good fun. And, um, and yeah, so that, that was how he came on. And it was a biggest jump for him as well, although he had done more than I had at that point. You know, he had done Hunt for the Wilder People. He had just shot Minari as well, which still took a while to finish. He shot that before this, unless I'm wow. mixing it up. I think so. I hope I'm not mixing that up. But anyway, and then Stranger Things, you know, so he had kind of earned his stripes a bit more than I had in terms of being in the, the bigger space. And um, and yeah, so we connected a lot. We tried to shot list and storyboard as much as we could um, together. And, uh, and, and then the lighting part and the approach was a key thing we chatted about a lot together. And that was to just be as practical as we can with we built with with Dan Hinn the production designer. You know, we built as much of those sets as we could to not need much lighting, um, like you know, artificial lighting. So everything turned on and all the lights that from the vents above and everything on the wall, everything was on all on dimmer boards, and so you could sort of fill, do whatever you needed to do to c control the space of the bunkers. Um, and so we could just keep it quite natural and move anywhere and it not feel artificial, you know. Um, and then it was similar with the exteriors and things, you know, sometimes there was a need to control stuff, but mostly we were trying to keep it as, as real as, as we could. Um, and we never had any interference or any conversations on that side from studio where they were concerned about looks or anything. I always thought there might be that, you know, because so many Hollywood things have specific looks and are in a specific place. I thought they, they sort of controlled that, but there was nothing that came there's no interference there or people concerned about, you know, wanting things to have more pop or whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, we, it was a great collaboration and, and he's really fast. I would say was the other thing that, that helped so much as he just sort of moves really quick. And nice to have a familiar face too. Like when stepping yeah, up exactly. to, you know, your first big budget studio movie, it's good to have somebody that knows you and you don't have to prove yourself to in quite the same way. Like, uh, were there any other familiar faces involved in the production for you or was it all new? No, it was all new, you know, which was quite daunting. I've actually built my um, my career, my learning on with a team here in South Africa like uh, I, I, that I actually studied at, at film school with. It was a pretty crappy film school, but it was still, uh, there was equipment and things to shoot with. Um, but in terms of composer, sound designer, DOP, editor, also writer, and before that as well, even a production designer, like I had these people that I um, that I always collaborated with on every single thing, you know, 
And, and so we learned a lot together and we did a lot in Five Fingers, that first feature I did, we all did that together. And, and then Apocalypse Now Now and this other short I did, they, they, everyone also worked on that. So it was the first time where I was kind of out without my team and just working with everyone was different, you know? And um, it was cool because I worked with some really great people and learned a lot. There were moments with certain people where I thought, I just wish I was working with my person. It would be better. You know, I think I'd be doing a better job, even though this guy I'm working with has done incredible work. For some reason, it's, I would be doing, this would be better with. with What's well, a time saver too. And it's just one less thing for you to have to worry about and manage when you're developing a new relationship with somebody. You can, it, you just have to take totally, a bit more time yeah. and go a bit more gently, gently on, on things than you yeah. could with somebody that you've got a rapport and a relationship and a dialogue. Okay. Built up with. But then other people, it was like, wow, this is just great. I'm such a cool, you know, Dan Henna really shines out to me as someone that was just such a pleasure to work with. And so easy, like, nothing on this was ever going to stress him out. And I just really enjoyed that part. You know, it doesn't mean you're not trying to push everything and be like, make it hard to get something done because it's usually all is relatively difficult, but there's just no need to be, you know, like really stressed out and, and blowing your fuse about things or anything like that. It just is what it is. And, you know, him having been through what he's been through, nothing on this was going to like make him raise an eyebrow out of it about anything. Yeah. You know, it was so funny. <laughs> oh, this reminds me of the third unit shot that we did in Lord of yeah, the Rings, exactly. you know, 20 something yeah. years ago. It all worked out fine. Don't yeah. worry about we it. We just stand there looking at the locations and we go, so we're going to do that. And you go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that'll be a wall. <laughs> that'll be a rock wall. And that'll be a uh, thing maybe. And then I'm like, can't we just move that? In? Oh, okay. I'll move. Yeah, fine. You know, move that there. And, uh, would do you know whatever and it would be such for me things i think jesus is like big things to figure out but he just you know for him it's all second nature the complexity of what it what it takes to move and logistically do things or build things is all easy the money yeah. part was hard because he was like didn't really you know the line producer kept having to tell him like this is not a big movie and yeah. he was like yeah 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 whatever he, he just <laughs> nothing phased him it was really funny oh that's um, great well, while we've been talking, we've been seeing probably one of the more expensive sequences in the movie playing out before our eyes. We've got our giant crab that's come in from the ocean uh, and and is now terrorizing this this community. Can you tell us a little bit about shooting this and the mix between what looks like some pretty complicated practical effects with sand mortars going off and then stunt yeah. work with fight scenes playing out? And um, is it Jessica Henwick too, holding her own yes. in a pretty impressive like bout yeah. of fisticuffs? Totally. She's she's been in um, Iron Fist, you know, a couple of things she's done. She's trained quite a bit as a fighter. So she naturally was quite uh, good to, to handle herself there. Um, yeah, there's what's interesting before even getting into the crab. So this location was we we're trying to find this cove like place where they would be protected from the ocean, from the creatures, because the walls are sort of high enough and they're on the ocean. And uh, we couldn't find anything. Again, it was that thing of like, we can't travel that far. So this was actually a green park. It was like a rocky, um, had some of the, the the main big part of the flat rock face, but then it was actually a public park with benches and things that was all green grass onto the beach. So we had to bring in tons and tons of sand and then oh, wow. build an extra portion of rocks uh, and then put the one part of it, like maybe a third of it is of the big rock wall is, is containers and big green screen to sort of create the space. Um, so it was quite an epic thing, but at least it was what was cool is we were all our places we were staying, the little hotel 
setup, this, this was down by um, Gold Coast, you know, we're all five minutes away. So it was like, we just came down and walked through the, the, the doorway into the set. And then here we were. And, but what was nice was that that sea was real. Like a lot of it was still in nature as opposed to creating the whole thing artificially or finding the rock area, but then having a big blue screen as to where the sea would be and stuff. Something about this felt, at least we're in the elements, the wind will yeah. be real, the sunlight's real, and you can feel all that stuff. Um, well, so you anyway, kind of so blew then, my mind. I would never have picked that, yeah. to be honest. Well done. Yeah, it was a tricky, it was one of our hard solves that we just had to make a call at a point and go, it'll work. It was smaller, smaller space than we actually wanted, but it was like, I think it'll be fine. We'll be able to figure it all out. Um, and then, so now we're on crab, kind of coming towards the end of it. Um, yeah, there was no practical crab bits. There was a giant blow-up crab, which was the size of this crab. The VFX guy found it in, in China as like online stuff. I think he had done it before on something else. And he just found this thing. It was massive blow-up crab for like $80 or something. And he just purchased it. And it was so funny. We had it on like wheels and we could ah. wheel it around mainly just to go to look at it and go, that's how big this thing would be rather yeah. than just having a tennis ball on a stick or like it was too big to have some kind of cut out or something. So um, we had the crab to at least frame up or sometimes bring it in and out just to, for everyone to get a sense of, Oh shit, it actually takes up like half the space. Yeah. It's, like all the things he does on the beach is so technically impossible based on the size. So we kept having to like pretend he's way back from where he is when he runs all the way across somewhere or, um, but I guess those are, that's all was all the tricks tricks of sort of boarding it out and making it it work within the space. Um, but yeah, so then he was, we we did quite a lot of um, uh, I forget what they call like a type of hydraulic pipe, like a gas air pipe things that were under the ground that would flick sand up, and and we had a crane, um, uh, what's it called, a, a cherry picker type arm that smashed that. Uh, the little toilet shed and a couple of other things oh, like wow. that when they break the tent up. Um, so there were some practical things we smashed and things. And a lot of that was happening. This was the only time we could get a second unit director to kind of do a lot of the pieces of the action while I was off with Dylan most of the time or with other cars shooting other parts to sort of meet our, our deadlines and our dates. Um, so there was four days where there was an overlap where their second unit, uh, Brian Smurs, who was really cool, was just shooting a lot of the action. He shot pretty much all of the the Jessica and Dana fight um he's done quite a lot of bigger action things and, and that sort of stuff um which is all quite handy the hard part for me a little bit was keeping the tonal balance right between the rest of the film and that sequence you know like I think you can watch it and probably feel like it's a little bit of a slightly different movie that section um just in terms of its sensibilities or something you know um but that was also okay because it was in the script and i always was a little cautious of it but thought i think there's going to be a lot of audience who actually are just quite happy to have a sequence like this play out you know there'll be some audience who's who feel a bit like i kind of enjoying a slightly more interesting movie that doesn't need to do all this but then there'll be i think a bigger broader audience who actually likes seeing a big sequence that's like a payoff of a of a more subtle movie overall you know um yeah no i mean i think that uh you threaded the needle and and all of that thought that you're describing for us now definitely plays out like that's a more bombastic 
Transformers-esque sequence, you know, where it's dodge this, and avoid that, you know, but um, you've set up the tone so well. And then again, the kind of design of the creature at the center of it, like keeps it really within the wheelhouse of Kind this, of fun. It's a bit Harryhausen-esque or something. Yeah. It's like a bit jokey. What's interesting there is the first, the script I got when to, to kind of pitch on and go into it, it was more of an octopus character, but a humanoid. It was like a bipedal octopus giant octopus sort of character that had more of a face and stuff and i was like i don't know if you if you totally shift the tone out to turn of almost make new rules of our creature at the end here it's something about it seems off and and um i think the clunkiness the simplicity of the creatures even though they're big and interesting and sort of fun is better and and I feel like I had seen the octopus thing and different, not that specifically, but Pirates of the Caribbean or even that first Lord of the Rings, the one that pulls them in, into the water there. Or I just felt like I'd seen it before. And also I was quite aware of the effects wise. I was like, I think it's way more complicated. Like if we have a crab, it's got hard, it's got only a certain amount of moving points and it's rigging. Yeah. And it's also its interaction with everything with slimy long tentacles and stuff. It's just going to be way harder to look super tactile. Like whereas a crab is kind of easier to go. It's clunky. And I quite like the clunkiness, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it was a, a good call, but it was quite a big change from, from where it was. Um, and also making it less human, like making it a crab, I thought was also kind of interesting. It just made it tougher to pull the eyes thing off and make sure that that was going to land and people weren't just going to burst out laughing and go, what the fuck are you talking about? This is so <laughs> stupid. Um, you know, uh, but it was a more fun creature. I was like, I don't think I've seen a big crab and this, I like the algae and the stuff growing on it and barnacles and uh, all those things. It's kind of more fun to me. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing we haven't touched on is the the book. You mentioned it, it was yes. part of your pitch and it's been a big part of the movie and, and the aesthetic. It's in the opening credits as well. The artistry that's on display in that book and the style of those illustrations. Uh, can you tell us about the development of those and who's responsible for the artwork and anything else that you might be able to tell us? Yeah, we got um, through Dan Henner. He found a couple of different styles of people to mock up things and go, how about this style? How about that style? They actually did take an take a bit of basing it off the book I'd done, that the pitch book not so much the drawings of the creatures because they were really crappy because I sort of did them I'm not very good but more the tone of how he would write stuff and you know versus more of a dense journal you know just the, the look and feel of it and then um, we tried a few different people and then got onto this guy Lyle I, I won't I can't remember his, his surname right now but he was really good he's from New Zealand um, and he, then he experimented with a few different things. And the trick was actually to make him make sure he wasn't doing it too well. Like it needed to feel a bit, you know, like this guy's gotten pretty good at drawing, but he's also not amazing. Um, and then try and give the character, the, 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 the monster and stuff, just a bit more flair and flavor than they had in real life, but not completely. Um, what's funny is thinking about it also is that first time we see him drawing in the flashback in the car at the beginning, he, um, he would Lyle was trying to do those and he was trying to do these jokey characters but he was too good and we ended up going like me and Dylan like redoing that Dylan literally <laughs> took what his bad character caricature was and like was drawing a crap version of it to go it's a, again a humor thing and and uh, other people on the set were like it's so bad it's not funny like it's gonna people are gonna think he's an idiot or something 
but we're like, no, but this character caricature one is like a caricature. No one's going to laugh at seeing yeah. a well done caricature where he knows what he's doing and he's drawn it badly. It's got to be crap, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so that was Dylan like drawing that, you know, on the set. It's just quite funny. And then you see the arc of going, oh, he learned how to draw. He got much better. And yeah. then in the end credits here, looking at the actual book, you can see there was a transition of being a bit worse and then them getting better and better, the images. That's kind of how the book oh, is. stunning. I've got, I, I've got the actual book, which is cool to go through. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's better than a, a turd slug that you might have been able to yeah, put on your desk. I feel like definitely. some of this, this art for your walls is just beautiful. Um, uh, I did have another question that's book related. Uh, we saw there at the end that... Um, Amy's character ends up with volume one and Joel goes away with a book that says volume two on the cover. Is that yeah, a setup yeah. for a potential sequel, my friend? And like, uh, is that something that people totally have been talking about? <laughs> um, well, I think it's just planting it. It was really just to make people feel like they wanted to carry on. Um, what's also interesting right at the end there with, uh, with the uh, uh, Clyde and Minna on the hill in the snowy spot, that was a total add on in post where and we knew it in the script phase too. We were like, people are going to, I always thought people are going to want them to show up in the end fight. Somehow they've like come back they've turned around and helped them or something, you know? And, um, but uh, it, it, people getting to the end of the movie from the test screenings were like, we just wanted to see them again or some, what happened to them or, you know, questions because we were like, we liked them so much. And then that was it, which I actually always liked in the script because again, it's another, another cliched thing to do is have these, just these, moment character moments along the way that should amount to more but they don't like mavis and like them um you know he's growing and learning from these other people but it doesn't need to be that now they're in the movie for the rest of the movie you know um anyway i'm going off track but that end no, scene interesting that end scene is uh of them in the snow we just manifested and we took it we couldn't shoot anything new um, we're in post, we had no money to like shoot another thing on blue screen with them or whatever and get the wardrobe or whatever. So we took them from the other hilltop scene they were in and just had to find a shot where they both at separate times stood in the right place and cut them out. And that's actually wow. the exact same rocky top. But then we changed the background of the hills and put this and then had to, you know, comp in snow and the, 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 the other things all around there to like build a different place. Um, Smart. Yeah, I just gave it an extra, and then then created that dialogue of for them, and and met, like gave them an extra moment at the end that that ends on like a funny note. Yeah. So, but does that leave us feeling like you know a sequel? Maybe, maybe not. Like there, maybe there's nothing it's to really up to the audience. I think you know what's crazy is like the time it's been released is just a messy time. The two where it's like the success of stuff is just not in its normal space, you know? Yeah. So to, for Paramount, they they did the PVOD thing you mentioned earlier where they released it in the US only, but yet to pay for it. And then it slowly dropped down and how much you pay and it'll go to a streamer soon, but it exceeded their expectations of what they thought it would do. Um, but I, you know, it didn't blow it out. Like nothing could at the time, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it never got like a real shot in that way. And then on the Netflix side, I'm not allowed to talk about numbers, but it did. So Netflix took it for the rest of the world and then did their release and then took kind of ownership of it. They've got it for 10 years or so, but they don't actually, it's not their IP. It's still Paramount. Yeah. Um, 
but that did exceptionally well and sort of like has been a huge hit for them. So that's kind of sparked up more conversations. But the tricky part is it's it's like complicated, the ownership part of it. Yeah. And the executives, this is classic Hollywood stuff, you know, that I used to always read about in, in, in good storybooks of people's careers and things. But, you know, the people I started the movie with weren't even there when it got released, you know, like they, the two different key execs I worked through for, with for a year and a half in and out and had all the notes and had so much like was so much a part of it were not around for like any conversations they they had you know moved on to another company and and so they aren't there now when it came out to be the ones going we put built this thing it's a success we yeah. want to make it happen and you got to have those people so now you've got different execs and this is also classic hollywood stuff is is like they don't really want to ride on the back of some making someone yeah. else look like they did well and they with their choices they're trying to make their own new choices and yeah. So all to say, I don't really know. You know, it's done all really well, very but familiar. also in a, yeah, it's, oh, does it? <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. So that's it's just kind of like it's just muddy, you know. So I just go, well, I don't know. If if, if there's enough money to it, someone's going to make the effort to say we really want this, and someone people can make money out of it, so we'll do it. But again, it brings it back to the time has just been odd where it you know things couldn't really succeed in a really big way or make a huge stamp theatrically and so we'll see i don't i'm not sure i don't really know uh, you mentioned uh there the, the ending you kind of went back and picked up a final moment between um clyde and minnow uh, as being something you learned through sort of the test screenings and then mm. doing some VFX sort of style pickups that you mentioned earlier too. There'd been other pickup moments along the way. Like what were the sort of um, things that you shot in pickups if you did any in the traditional sense? Um, we had, we had two days of pickups and we shot um, the main thing we shot. This was the big change we did in the movie with the film was we changed the, the ending, the relationship with Joel and Amy that scene where she says there was someone else and, and um, you know, uh, he's not around anymore, basically implying, and she says, I didn't ask you to come. That, that whole scene was a new scene. Um, what it was before was Joel um, just feeling inadequate to this captain guy, and there was more scenes of that. And him reading a lot more into that and her also being not quite sure if she was quite into Joel, but when, or, or like, you know, this captain guy is going and he's got a plan and all that, which I must say on the script level, even there were chats where we were a little bit like uh, the flags were going up for me where it felt a little surface layer ish, but it was such a big change to make in the script after years of development. But I remember thinking, mm, I don't know, like, I'm not sure what we'll think of Amy if we come all the way here and then she's kind of into someone else, like that's her reasoning is, is an odd, it's a bit shallow. And, um, and the other thing that didn't exist is him raiding his colony uh, in that scene. So there were just these two little cave sets that we built. Uh, they were actually the exact same set that we just redressed, small little like cave set. The other one was that, that one where he radios his colony and they, he gets hold of them and they, they have this whole chat that reignites like a connection. It was originally just he looks at the map and he actually left. He looks at the map, he realizes what's on the back, he reads all that, has an emotional thing. Then this ca the captain comes down into that scene and kind of justifies to him that he probably should head off. 
and he just feels like he shouldn't be here and he goes back out joel he's packed his bag he sees amy with the fire with the captain and everyone else and they're having quite a good time and he just leaves he just goes i'm gonna go back home and he starts going back home he's without boy he's camping he's trying to call out for boy and then he realizes because captain gave him this food and stuff that the berries were in this food and he's like you try to poison me you bastard and he runs back to the Right. to their place and runs out to the beach and they're all dancing and it picks back up there so that was quite a huge structural change a lot of it was just editorial but then those two scenes i talked about with the two we yeah. had to rewrite to to make Smart. it more just human it was just more like i think rather than trying to everyone was throwing out a lot of ideas because the audience didn't like it it was a test screening thing they were like we don't really like amy and we're not sure why he goes back to his colony and we're like, oh god, these are so. This is really tricky to fix. Um, but then, and, when you find that soul of like, it's got to be elegant, and it is. Because, it's got to just know, be human it... and honest, because then you yeah. can't argue with it. It's not gimmicky. It's like, oh, it's not some crazy thing. It's just she met someone else, and he hasn't grown up. She's kind of grown up, and he hasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it worked, oh, and then audiences beautiful. liked it, and then we screened it, and they went, and then that was not an issue, and we were like, phew. Okay. well done you know <laughs> well well done on that and well done on the whole film uh thanks man it's it's such an incredible ride and i think you've done such an amazing job with the movie uh it's been wonderful to have you here and hear about how you made it happen yeah thanks man it's been awesome to chat through it before we let you go is there other projects coming up that you can tell us a little bit about um, I can't really, unfortunately. I've got like, there's a couple that are quite exciting, but I can't really talk about them, unfortunately. Um, that is, that the one is that's quite fun. The one that's quite fun is to look at the short I did a couple of, it was like a year before Love and Monsters, called Apocalypse Now Now. And you can watch it on YouTube and that sort of thing. That we're still developing as a South African sort of twisted dark fantasy project. That's really fun. But the short's cool to see. And, and that was a lot of what led me to get this film like the fe the first feature i did was definitely a part of earning the stripes and it did well at festivals and got quite good acclaim but that that short i did apocalypse now now has a has a bit more of the comedy and the punch and the pop to it and some visual effects and that was actually a lot of what pushed me forward into right. this so, so it's quite fun to check that out and and can people find you on social media um they can if i can let me just remember who i am so on Twitter, it's at Michael with a capital M-I-C-H-A-E-L underscore Matt with two T's, M-A-T-T, and then underscore again. And then Instagram is Michael T. Matthews, all lowercase. So it's M-I-C-H-A-E-L underscore T underscore Matthews with two T's. Well, we will help you out by putting that in the uh, the show notes and up on Instagram and, and, and the like to make sure that people can follow along with your career because i'm sure whatever comes next is going to be very very exciting awesome man yeah i appreciate it thanks for reaching out and it's really i'm stoked you're doing these and it's cool to be a part of it well it's cool that you came thank you so much we look forward to having you back for the next one whatever it might be yeah jurassic park six no, i'm <laughs> kidding that's that's not true i'm just making that up <laughs> no that's i'm running with it that's the headline that's what we're telling the press <laughs> thank you mate it's been fun Cool, man. Cheers. Oh, thank you, Michael. And that is the end of another show. Thank you to anyone who has been listening along as well. You might describe it as a monster episode, Dave. 
I wouldn't. <laughs> you could. You could. No one would like it. No one would respect you, but you could. Um, until next week, you can find me on Instagram. I am at Grant Spitore. And I'm at Is That You, Dave? Uh, the show has its own Instagram at The Commentary Cast, where you can feel free to stop by, drop a comment, or suggest other films we should feature. If you've enjoyed the show, be sure to take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you download your quality podcasts. Feel free to drop us a review and uh, send us your favorite monster. Well, until then, insert catchphrase here. We out. <laughs>